We are continuing our summer sermon series in the Gospel of John. So, we're at the end of John 5, verse 30. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. John chapter 5. William Shakespeare. You, you guys know who that is, right? My guess is if you could like, li- make a list of your top five most impactful people in your life, it's probably William Shakespeare, right? You, you all loved reading all of Shakespeare's plays in high school. You just wish you could go back and read Romeo and Juliet. Well, he is one of the greatest authors of all time. Let's just give him his credit. He's one of the greatest playwrights, and much of the English language is devoted to him. He loved making up words. That's why I love making up words, too, all right? It's fun. But there's a phrase that, I don't know if he really said it. It's attributed to him. I sort of doubt he said it. But in reality, I think he sort of hidden, hid this sort of principle, this phrase, in almost every one of his plays. The phrase is this. He was said to have said that your greatest strength begets your greatest weakness. My guess is you've heard that phrase, that, that wisdom before. Your greatest strength can become your greatest weakness. And here's just a, a, a cheat code. So, uh, well, there's not, not many high school. But when you get into high school, here's the cheat code. Almost every one of Shakespeare's plays is sort of a working out of that sort of plot tension. So if you take Julius Caesar, you don't have to read it. You know, if you know history at all, you know Brutus kills Julius Caesar. But, but what is Brutus's greatest strength? It's his love of country. And if you know how it ends, what it breeds his downfall, what's his greatest weakness? Love of country. Or, or take Romeo and Juliet. This is probably the easiest one to see. Like, how do you make sense of the relationship between Romeo and Juliet? They're from different worlds, from enemy families. What makes sense of their relationship? Naive love. And what is their downfall? Shocker, spoiler alert, sorry. Why do they die? Naive love. Their great strength became their great Weakness. Now, you don't have to take Shakespeare at his word. I mean, just think about it in normal life. I mean, you take maybe a man, for instance, and he has that inner drive, that, that, that inner competitiveness, and he climbs up the ladder, tooth and nail. That's not the right phrasing, but you get the, he climbs up the ladder, works really hard, has that inner drive, and often, sometimes, that strength, when they get to the top, can be their undoing. They can, you know, take shortcuts to the top. Or maybe a strength of compassion and empathy. You know, those people who are just really, really compassionate. They empathize. They feel things deeply. That's a strength. It's a good strength. Um, But taken too far, and you get sucked into everyone's drama. You get what sociologists will call triangulated. And it can ruin you. It can be your downfall. Or maybe you're good with your hands. Your greatest strength is you can fix almost everything. But then that strength turns into weakness when you look at relationships or your marriage as a problem to be fixed. Strengths can become weaknesses. And it makes sense because we we rely on our strengths to get us to where we're at. And in many ways, what, what got us to the top or what got us wherever we're at, it was our strengths. And so we keep riding our strengths until our strengths turn on us and they 
become weaknesses. And we see it in the church too. Probably the, the, the easiest example I can explain, and it's, we're sort of in the wake of it, we're in the region of this, just think of the church Mars Hill up in Seattle. How do you explain the success of Mars Hill? Well, largely, the, the charisma, the dynamic of a man. He was creative. He, uh, he, he was provocative. He, he was known for his kind of verbal tirades that everyone just wanted to see. What would he do next? He, he went from 15 to 15,000. He started a church planning network. Had a website that had more, at one point, more kind of uh, clicks. More people were going to that website than almost any other Christian website on the internet. He was doing multi-site when multi-site was still beta. He was cutting edge from fifteen to 15,000. And then in about four months, it all came crashing down. Now, how, how do you explain that? Well, you don't have to listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill on, on podcasts to know that it was the strength that built Mars Hill was the very thing that, in the end, undid Mars Hill. Strengths can easily turn into weaknesses. And in many ways, this is what we're going to see at the end of chapter 5. Strengths taken too far, relied on too heavily. Strengths that people look through to say, oh, this is going to bring life. If I just do this, then we're going to be okay. And inevitably, those strengths, when you trust in those strengths, they can turn on us. And that's what we see in chapter 5. So I'll give you the big idea, and then I'm going to read the text, and we're going to go through the text. The big idea is simply this. The witness of Jesus is clear. One of the questions for us is, will you, will we believe it? John chapter 5, starting in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that a Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have not seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is, that, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you, rec- how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
My guess is you heard a, re- a word or a phrase that was repeated over and over again in that section. Witness. So in one sense, we can just look at these you know, few verses, this section, as the best of courtroom drama. I mean, some of you love those like law and order shows, those courtroom dramas, and this is one of those. This is a courtroom drama. It's kind of, it functions as a courtroom. And Jesus is, at the beginning, he's on the defense. So, so it sort of breaks up this way. Starting in verse 30, Jesus once again kind of explains who he is. Earlier, if you were here last week, earlier in chapter 5, Jesus talks about this identity. He, he's, he, he, the religious leaders call him blasphemous for saying he's the son of God and calling himself equal with God. And so he basically says, yeah, that is correct. He nuances what this kind of Trinitarian relationship looks like, but he says, I I am the Son of God. And now he says, and I'm going to bring out some witnesses. I'm going to bring out some witnesses in order for you to see. So you can think of it this way. It's a courtroom scene. Jesus is put on the defense, and he ushers in witnesses. And after he ushers in these witnesses, we'll look at them kind of as we go through the text, he then makes a closing argument as to why he is who he says he is. Why his claims about who he is are, in fact, true. Because in one sense, Jesus' claims, they're pretty outrageous. Suggesting that he's equal with the Father. I mean, talk is cheap. And, and Jesus knows, and we see it in verse 31, that he can't just make a claim, right? In the Old Testament, you needed at least two witnesses on any legal claim. So he needs to have witnesses. And so he brings out not one, not two, not three. Jesus says he has four witnesses that are going to testify on his behalf about who he is. I asked the elders, I read the text, um, when, we, when we gather, we, we read through the text, we pray about it, and then we pray through the directory. And so I said, hey, I'm going to read the text. I want you to name the four witnesses that you see. And they did it. So you could do it too. The first is John the Baptist. The second witness are his works, his miracles. Verse 36. Then verse 37, the Father. Then finally, verse 38 through 40, you have the scriptures. So John the Baptist, sort of a character witness. You've got his mighty works, sort of experiential witness. You then have God the Father, <laughs> the ultimate sort of trump card. And then you have the scriptures, which is in some sense the, the evidence that he kind of puts forth in most detail. So we'll kind of work our way through these four witnesses and what they tell us about Jesus as the Messiah. So first, John the Baptist. Now, we, we saw in chapter 1 that John the ba- Baptist was already bearing witness to who Jesus was. So, so this shouldn't surprise us that, once again, Jesus says, well, here's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, remember back in chapter 1, Jesus' baptism, he, he bears witness that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he says, here, John. John is that credible witness. He was above reproach. You, you couldn't have a negative word about John in one sense. He lived consistent. No, no hypocrisy in John. And so Jesus says, first, John, he bears witness about me. And it's interesting because 
Jesus calls him a burning and shining lamp, which I think is a beautiful and perfect description there in verse 35 about who John is, who John was. Because when you think about it, a lamp has to be lit. And that's John, right? Later on, Jesus is going to call himself the light of the world. But John's not the light of the world. John's not the author of light. What John is, John walks into a dark room and just switches on the light and then points and says, yep, that's him. You've been waiting. You've been waiting in the dark. And that's John. And we learned for a while, verse 35, sort of initially, people kind of liked John. They were entertained by John. They rejoiced in John. Some listened to John. But then they got annoyed with John. John had this tendency to say things and to step on people's toes. Eventually, he's going he's to attack someone's marriage. He's going to attack and, and kind of point out some sexual immorality, and it's going to wind up getting him killed. So they loved him. They entertained him. They put up with John for a while. Society did. The religious leaders did. Until he said things like, Oh, here comes this guy named Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then they're like, no, John, you're taking this too far. So, the first witness comes up, John the Baptist. Another witness needs to take the witness stand. And so we have it, verse 36. Jesus puts on his works, his miracles, and says, look at what I've done. Do you remember the whole context of this sort of conversation is that Jesus heals a man. 38 years, he was disabled, and he heals him. And then if you go back to chapter um, 2, Jesus turns water into wine, and then there's sort of a hint that Jesus even performed more miracles. And so he says, look at all these, look at all these miracles. Now, every summer, I, I, my family goes back to Spokane to visit my parents, and almost every summer... We then go up to North Idaho uh, to the Disneyland of the Northwest to Silverwood. And if you've ever been to Silverwood, it's fun. There's roller coasters. It's, it's a good time. But if you haven't seen it, there's a magic show there, okay? And you get tickets, and you can sit in the front row, to which I've done. And it's great. And it's amazing. It's actually a really good magic show. And I remember sitting there, and I'm watching these, this magic. And the whole time I'm thinking, how are they doing this? How is this possible, right? I'm like... I'm like, you know, the, the thing's going here, and I'm like, I'm going to look over here. I'm going to figure this whole thing out. Because that's, that's what sort of magic does, right? You, you sit back, and you have to try to make sense of it. And that's what's going on here. Jesus says, look at what I've done. Look at my miracles. How do you make sense of them? And so in one sense, and I'll read in a second, Jesus' miracles are even a greater witness to who he is because Everyone has to kind of grapple with what are these things saying about who Jesus is. So look at verse 36. The testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus has healed. He's turned water into wine. He's performed all these miracles. And so he says, how do you make sense of these mighty acts? 
And he's saying what those acts are, what those miracles are, what those wonders, those works, they were all signs pointing to my relationship with the Father, pointing to the, that the Father has sent me. That's 36. Now, now this shouldn't shock us because this is, this is sort of the function, if you think of the entire Bible, this is the function of how wonders and signs work. Remember when we preached through Exodus, like about a year ago? Moses stands before Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Let Israel go from bondage in Egypt. But God doesn't send him alone, does he? God says, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to give you signs and wonders. And he performs them. Now, what was the purpose of them? Well, there was a few purposes, but one of the purposes was that Pharaoh would wake up and realize, oh my goodness, God is on Moses' side. There were signs to pointing to that, that, that Moses had a, had a power had a function. They were to awaken this slumbering Pharaoh to the realization that he needs to take Moses and Moses' God serious. And that's the sort of function that these works and signs and wonders and miracles were playing in Jesus' ministry. They were pointing to his relationship with the Father, that only he could do these sorts of things if he, well, if the Father had allowed him to do them. And yet, they rejected it. Now, I, I don't know about you, but for me, as I was just kind of wrestling with this, I was like, how could they reject these, these amazing miracles, these, these wonders, these signs? And then I remembered. In Matthew 12, we get one reason, one sort of motivation for why the religious leaders rejected the testimony of Jesus, the, 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 the miracles of Jesus and how it pointed to his status as the Son of God. Remember Matthew 12? So some people bring a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus heals him so that he could both talk and see. And the people, they're astonished, and this is what they say. They said, could this be the son of David? Right? So, so they rightly stand back and go, we just saw something. We saw a sign. We saw a wonder. We saw a miracle, a healing, and they instantly think, oh, this man might be the son of David. Uh, a title, you know, uh, for, for the Messiah. But then the religious leaders, the Pharisees, heard this, and this is what they said. It is only by Belzebel, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Do you see how they push away the wonders, the miracles? They say, oh, yes, Jesus did do this, but he did it because of dark magic. Witchcraft. He drove out these demons by the power of demons. And so in some ways, the mounting tragedy of the story, of this interaction, is just the, the kind of, the effort taken to reject the credible witness of Jesus. The, the tragedy is they just keep rejecting these, these men, these miracles that are put on the witness stand by Jesus. They just keep rejecting him. So, there's another, verse 37. And this time, well, I'll read it. But God is said to be a witness to Jesus and Jesus' identity. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now, when did Jesus, or when did the Father bear witness to Jesus? Well, Jesus could be talking about his baptism. You know, about his baptism, heaven opens. And the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. There, there's a testimony. 
There's a fatherly testimony about his son. Well, there's, there's multiple ways in which we could think about God the Father bearing witness about Jesus, but, but we see in our text that there is a problem, and that is that you can't see God. If you see God, you die. And so it's as if Jesus is saying, okay, my, my, my witness is the Father who has testified personally about me, but you're just going to have to take my word for it. Because you can't see him, and he spoke, but you can't hear him. You're mute as it relates to this. You're just going to have to take me at my word. It sort of reminds me, I went to a Christian college, and I remember um, I wasn't really raised in a Christian home, and so I, this was all sort of new to me, and I was learning this, this new language. And, and I remember as a freshman seeing a guy walk up to a girl. This guy wasn't very good looking, but he walked up to a pretty girl and said, I was praying this morning. And I felt like God said that I'm supposed to date you. I was like, what a pickup line. Okay? Ladies, if you ever hear this, single ladies, just, if you ever hear a man say this, run. Okay? Just run. Run for the hills. But I remember hearing that. And I was like, well, that's convenient, isn't it? And it seems like the religious leaders are thinking it like that. Like, oh, Jesus, this is convenient. Of course you heard the Father say that he's well pleased with you. We didn't hear it. So they reject witness number three. And at this point, in this sort of courtroom drama, we get to the low point. You watch those courtroom dramas, right? There's like a high point, and then there's a low point when you think, uh-oh, the good guys are going to lose. It's going to go against their favor, and you're thinking, ah, 0 for 3. Enter witness 4. The scriptures. Particularly the Old Testament scriptures, verse 38. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you're going to have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says, you you don't believe me. You don't believe my testimony. You don't even believe the Father's testimony because you don't believe God's word. And it doesn't You don't believe that God's word, the Old Testament scriptures, bears witness about me. And then you go down to verse 46, and this is perhaps one of the most outrageous claims. He says, you don't even believe Moses. Now, this is quite the accusation, especially when you think about who he's talking to. He's talking to the religious people, the fundamentalists, the people who study the scriptures, memorize the scriptures, protected the scriptures, would kill people because of the scriptures. If anyone believed the scriptures, believed Moses, trusted the scriptures, understood the scriptures, it was the religious leaders. They're the good guys. And Jesus turns on them and says, oh, I'm going to, if you just read your Bibles, you would realize that they, the Old Testament scriptures, bear witness about me, but since you don't read your Bibles, of course you're not going to believe me. They loved Moses, revered Moses, and yet Jesus says they've rejected Moses. And here's the turn. It's the turn because in many ways, Jesus has been on the defense, which he was never really. He just sort of pretended to be on the defense. But here's the reverse, and now he realizes, oh no, Jesus is not the defendant. Jesus is actually the prosecuting attorney. 
and the strength of the religious leaders, the strength of Israel, is about to be their downfall. Their strength were, they were the Bible people. They knew the scriptures. And it's that strength that's going to do, be their, they're going to, it's going to be their undoing. He says, verse 39, you search the Old Testament scriptures because you think you have life in them. But you don't, Jesus says. Which is shocking. Just sit in that for a second. What Jesus is saying, bare minimum, is there is a way to read your Bibles that does not bring life. There is a way of reading the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, being in Bible studies, coming to church. There is a way of preaching the scriptures that does not bring life. And there's lots of ways to do it. I think in some ways, what some were doing in Jesus' days, they were sort of supernaturalizing, spiritualizing the Bible. Uh, The book is, the Old Testament was a book to be sort of decoded with hidden meanings in it. And so there was lots of sort of eccentric interpretations of the Old Testament scriptures. I think we still do this today. You just have to turn on TBN to see that. Or some, I think, have just thought, well, the Bible's just a rule book. It's a manual for living. It's a set of principles to apply to one's life. But if the Bible was merely a rule book for life, can we just all be honest? It's a terrible book. I mean, my air conditioner broke in my car. Bible didn't tell me anything. I had no idea what to do. Your, your family member gets diagnosed with mental illness. The Bible doesn't seem to tell you what to do next. What to do in a recession? 401k? Where to invest? I mean, I'm, Bitcoin, I don't find it anyone. I don't, I don't know what to do with it. I can't, don't even know what it is. So, so if the Bible was merely a rule book for life, there are so many problems, so many so many instances in which the Bible does not address. And I think in some ways this is probably our Achilles heel, our, the sort of conservative, exegetical Achilles heel. Because we're Bible people. I mean, it's easy to just look at the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, because we know that they're the bad guys, but they're us. They're the church. They're the conservative Bible people, the fundamentalists of their day. And I think, in many ways, this is our preoccupation. That if we just go verse by verse, we just have exegetical preaching, if we just get our Bibles right, if we just believe all the right things. I mean, we're a church that really does believe that animals got in an ark. We take the Bible literally. I mean, I joke with my kids that when we go to the zoo, the Tacoma Zoo, I say, hey, you better talk to animals. I don't know, in numbers, God spoke through a donkey. You never know. I joke with them all the time. Like, we believe all this stuff. It's our tribe's strength. And so it can be really easy to open up our Bibles and to say, because we read our Bibles, memorize our Bibles, and have maybe the right doctrinal position on inerrancy, that we're okay, that we have life because of our doctrinal position. So we take the story of David and Goliath and think, well, that's just a a story about courage. And 
The Good Samaritans is just a story about generosity. And yet the shocking thing about this is to realize that there is a way of reading your Bible that doesn't produce life. In the contrary, it just produces damnation. You just sit in that. That's, that's basically what Jesus is saying. You, you, you open up your scriptures thinking that you're going to find life, but you're not finding life. Because if you found life, you would have found Jesus. So Jesus is clear. The Old Testament scripture, it's about him. It's about him. No, what, what does this mean? Well, it means many things, but to quote, and I'm, I'm stealing this from a ministry that we're kind of in relationship with, Simeon Trust, what this means is this, this, this sort of central point of the scriptures, according to the scriptures, is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The central point of the Bible, according to the Bible, is Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says. If you had read your Old Testament, you would have realized that the Old Testament scriptures weren't just the introduction to Jesus. They're part of God's big story about how he has reconciled humanity to himself. Now, I'll explain how this works. It, it, it works a lot of ways. And there's a lot of weird ways you can do this, right, that are just wrong. You don't see the story or read the story of Rahab and go, oh, she had a red scarf. Oh, that's Jesus' blood. Don't do that. That's weird, okay? That's not what it looks like to connect everything to Jesus. But I'll just kind of give two sort of pillars about how we do this. And I think we find the pillars in Deuteronomy 31, verse 26. So Moses writes this word. I think there's, there's an allusion in our text that Jesus is making to Deuteronomy 31. M- Moses writes this. that He says, take this book of the law, right? The, the, the Ten Commandments, right? Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. And there, that is the Scriptures, will remain as a witness against you. Have you ever seen that? So here you have the Ark of the Covenant, which is God's provision for God's people in the Old Covenant for how they could be reconciled with God in light of their sin. He says, and right by this Ark, this this means of how God's people are going to be reconciled with God, he puts the Scriptures and says, those Scriptures are going to testify against you. Now, testify against God's people. How? They're going to testify to their sin. Do you see how this works? It's, it's perfect. It makes perfect sense. He says, I'm going to put my law right next to my way in which you can find redemption in God, restoration in God, find pardon from your guilt, because the Old Testament scriptures were not to be read to say, oh, great, I did it all. I checked off, I, I checked off all the, the things I had to do. You don't read the Old Testament thinking, oh, this is how great I am. The point was they were to bear witness to how ungreat we are. And in so doing, they were put right next to the ark to realize, oh, we need to run to the, to the means in which God has given in redemptive history to provide for our guilt and sin. And so the Old Testament, when it comes to the laws as it relates to how we are to live, they really do point out our unfaithfulness. And so they merely whet our appetite, existentially wondering, well, then what do we do? We aren't good enough. We've got a problem. 
And Houston can't solve it. And so they point us to God's provision. And the second pillar is they point us to the provision, not merely in the ark, not, not merely in the tabernacle, but ultimately all those sorts of things were, were types and shadows. They were all just appetizers for, that were all pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises about himself. So the Old Testament kind of whets our appetite to our need for a Savior, and then they point us to the reality that Jesus Christ is himself the fulfillment of those promises. And here are the religious leaders. They read their Bibles, knew their Bibles better than us, and yet they missed it. And it makes sense they missed it. I mean, if you've ever, if you've ever talked to someone about their sin or someone's pointed out your sin to me, I mean, you might not be a lawyer, but your inner lawyer comes out, doesn't it? And you begin to get defensive, you deflect, you give your defense. And so it makes sense that they're like, no, we'd rather have a Bible, a safe Bible, that just points out how wonderful we are, not points out the necessity for our needing a Savior. And Jesus says, you missed it. You kept reading Moses, you kept reading your old scripture, uh, the scriptures, but you missed it. And we can miss it too. I, I remember talking to someone who said, I, I love going to my church. This was down in Oregon years ago. Um, and he, the, this, this neighbor went to a different church and he, and he said, I love going to my church because my church makes me feel good. And we think, that's odd. Because for 2,000 years, the church wasn't a means to make us feel good. It was actually a means to help us make sense about why I don't feel good. Like, what's wrong with this world? Why am I sad? Where does happiness come from? The religious leaders, I think, are much more like us. I think that's, that's the turning point in all of this. The Bible, more than a rule book, and there are rules, there are commands, there are imperatives, but more than that, the Bible's sort of like Narnia. It's a window into another world where you get to understand who God is and who I am and how to make sense of the world around me. It's a window, and you don't just stare at the pane of the window. The point of a window is to look through it, and that's the point of the Bible, to look through it and to see and savior and understand who God is and what he's doing in this world. And it's wonderful So so let me just, if you're reading your Bible, if you're in a Bible study, if you're hearing a sermon and and you don't hear Jesus and it just feels like do better moralism, throw the Bible study away. You have my permission. I won't give you your money back, but there's something far greater going on in in our Bibles. Because the Bible together is about how God is reconciling and redeeming and bringing a people to himself through Jesus Christ. He lived, he died, he rose again in order to reconcile us to himself. And that is the central interpretive grid for the entire Bible, and they missed it. And so can we. 
Now, at this point, Jesus rests sort of his case. Verse 41. And he begins and he turns on his closing remarks. And it's interesting because at this point, and I sort of alluded to it, Jesus is no longer a defendant. He's the prosecuting attorney. Because you can't put God in the dock, to quote C.S. Lewis in his book. You can't put God on trial. We do it all the time. God, why would you do this? God, why would you do that? But just read the book of Job. God is not on the witness stand. You can't put him as the defendant. Because at the end of the day, God is the judge. And so the whole thing turns and you get these accusations. And they just come quickly, right? You don't love me. You you just read the Bible so you can get applauded. You can get self-approval. You can get your own glory, it says, verse 41. You, I do not receive glory from you, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. Verse 44, how do you believe when you just receive glory from one another? Do not seek the glory that comes before you. He just ushers in accusation after accusation in his closing argument. You don't love me, and I know you don't love me because you have not accepted the one God sent And then he does something really interesting in verse 45. He says, Moses, not only is the Old Testament scriptures a witness to Jesus, but they're also going to be an accuser of us. Jesus says, I'm not going to accuse you on that day. You're rejecting me? I won't accuse you. Who's going to accuse them? Moses. Isn't that interesting? Their very strength that they were the Bible people in the end, is going to be the very thing that's going to undo them. Their strength is their weakness. So what this looks like is they're going to say, nope, we, we, we were the people of God. We, we, we did all the right things. I did all the good things. I, I, I took communion. I, I took catechism class. I, I'm good. I, I had the Bible. I was part of the conservative. I, I was, I, I, right? And they're going to launch in like, I was, I was a Bible person. So I have to be good. And Jesus says, on that day, on that final day, you're going to say that. You're going to maybe have that witness. <laughs> and the scriptures are going to come and not validate you. They are going to come and accuse you to say, you missed it. You missed it all along. But I, but I memorized the scripture. Oh, but you didn't memorize and understand what the scriptures were pointing to. Oh, but I preached really good sermons. I got, a, I, I got a degree. Oh, but if you, if you preach a sermon or teach a Bible study or read in a way in which God himself doesn't interpret the Bible, we all have a problem. Strengths lead to ruin because here, their strength, they were leaning into it and thinking, well, if I just have the Bible, then I'm good. But the Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. And so just because you have the Bible and your right doctrinal statement doesn't mean you're good. Life comes through the Son. So, what does this mean for us? It means that we need to be careful with our strengths, whatever they may be. Because the problem with strengths is you begin to rely on them and think your strengths are what bring you salvation. 
but they might not. Unless your strength is Jesus Christ. And then in that day, if your strength is, it will also be used against you in the heavenly courtroom of God. But not in a bad way. In a wonderful way. And so all along, as Jesus is putting his witness before them, and as he begins to accuse them, there is this hint of hope, this opportunity of hope, which is, if you believe in me, if you don't trust in your strengths, trust in yourself, trust in your morality, trust in your good works, trust in all the things that our world trusts in, but instead trust alone in Jesus Christ, then that strength will not be your undoing. It will be your success. It'll be your triumph. It'll be your crown. Because it wasn't about us. It was always about Jesus. So at the end of the day, and I'll just leave this with us. At the end of the day, the calling on this. For these four witnesses and the accusation, the courtroom leaves us sort of not in the jury, but we're all defendants. And the question before all of us is, are we going to believe the witnesses? Are we going to believe Jesus that he is who he says he is? And in that sense, entrust our lives to him, regardless of what befalls us? If so, that is a strength that I promise you, whatever storm may come, it will strengthen you and and buoy you. Because it's a strength that will last forever. Your union with Christ. Do you believe Jesus? Let's pray. God, I, um, we, we come before you knowing that all of us have questions about your word, doubts about your word, and yet, Lord, we, we pray that the simplicity of your son, Jesus Christ, and who he is and what he's come to do among us in living for us and dying for us in our place, that we might be unified to you. Lord, we pray, we pray, Lord, that you would encourage us with the reality and assurance of a redeemed relationship with you. Lord, we're thankful for all that you're doing in our lives and pray, Lord, that we would live as the redeemed, that we would deepen our belief in who you are and that we would trust ourselves to you and to one another. And we pray all this in your son's name.